0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.
1: I look at instincts as a pathway. So we are born with them, they're a pathway in our brain, and we choose how much we turn them on or turn them off. So the instincts, if you look at them as a bunch of patterns, and then you say, okay, which patterns do I need to work on? Which patterns can be more developed? Then you've got something.
2: Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn how COVID has impacted Canadians' vision loss. We'll discuss the characteristics of sexually healthy adults. We'll find out about the latest type 2 diabetes treatment research. And lastly, we'll explore the connection between our instincts and the motivation to live healthier. But first, a little bit of business. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of The Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. In 2011, Laura Feltz was diagnosed with glaucoma and in 2015, she became legally blind with partial sight. She was working a demanding corporate job, logging over 60 hours a week, and she was in an executive team meeting when she realized she could no longer see the faces of the people who were more than a foot away from her. She mistook two executives with similar hairstyles for each other, and it was an embarrassing mistake for her. She's now an advocate and an ambassador for Fighting Blindness Canada, known as FBC. My other guest, Doug Earle, is president and CEO of Fighting Blindness Canada. With more than 30 years of professional fundraising experience, Doug has worked with some of Canada's leading health charities, including Diabetes Canada, the Canadian Haemophilia Society, the Canadian Cancer Society, and the Arthritis Society. He has helped raise $1.2 billion for social, educational, and health causes around the world. Welcome to the Tonic. Laura and Doug. So my understanding is glaucoma is one of the leading causes of blindness in Canada and is often referred to as the silent thief of sight as there are few warning signs or symptoms. A cost of vision loss and blindness in Canada report issued this month by the Canadian Council of the Blind and Fighting Blindness Canada estimates that 1,437 Canadians lost their vision due to delayed eye examinations and delayed treatment in 2020 because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The report further estimates that it will take two years to clear the additional backlog of cataract surgeries caused by the pandemic which is scary. And in fact, my mother happens to be one of those people that has to have cataract surgery in the coming weeks. So this is this is personal to me. Laura, how does it make you feel when you hear these numbers that COVID is impacting eye care in Canada?
0: Yeah, so for me, when I hear those numbers, A, they're startling. And I also look at it and think of myself when i was going through my initial glaucoma journey because glaucoma is a very silent disease it's you there are no symptoms per se so i've had a detached retina many years ago over 2 decades ago and i had light flashes and had difficulty driving at night with glaucoma there wasn't any of that so you may not even realize that you have an eye disease unless you go and see your eye care professional,
2: I, because it's incremental, right? Like you don't—it happens at a pace that you don't even recognize what's going on. I, get, I gather
0: exactly, and even going into the treatment. So my glaucoma was stable for a couple of years, and then all of a sudden, it seemed like my peripheral vision had shrank, and I was getting regular, uh, they call it a vision field scan. So it's a test to see your peripheral vision and where it's at. And I remember driving on the 401 to go and visit my family. And I remember turning my head to see my side view mirror because I couldn't just casually glance at it from my peripheral vision. And I knew that my life would forever be changed going forward because I would not be able to drive.
2: So for those who don't know, what is glaucoma?
0: Yeah, glaucoma is uh, an eye disease where you get pressure on the optic nerve. And if you think of your retina like the um, light that reflects the picture, but the optic nerve, if you think about, about it as the plug that goes into the wall, like your brain, So the pressure on the optic nerve causes the optic nerves to basically disintegrate. So all of a sudden, those plugs to your brain that make the picture are no longer there. So you just lose sight.
2: In retrospect, what were the warning signs, if any, of the symptoms that you experienced?
0: Again, no warning signs for me. I was actually, I had a cornea infection and... I was with the specialist when my last visit with him, and he said, oh, I see glaucoma. I'm referring you to the glaucoma specialist. I went to see him, got on drops right away. But for me, I didn't feel anything. There was no pain, no light flashes. It was just like everything seemed normal, and it wasn't.
2: Hmm. So if you're comfortable talking about it, how has vision loss impacted your life? Because I, I know you, you know, in speaking with you before we were on, you were telling me about, you know, your, your professional life in HR.
3: Hmm.
0: Yeah, there's been a big impact. Well, number one, I mentioned about my uh, driving on the 401. I no longer drive. So I chose to stop driving before I needed to start drive stop driving. And having a driver's license since I was 16 years old. And then in my mid to late 40s, not driving. Right. It seemed like there's a loss of independence for sure because I'm relying on others, either my family members or tr- the transit system to fill that gap in. Also, like I'll even share an example from this morning. I knocked over the jar with my makeup brushes. So it's a stainless steel jar, so everything was safe. However, my immediate thought was, oh, how many brushes are in that jar? And I did the mental math in my head, and I started, like, I was on my hands and knees on the floor feeling for all of the brushes and the concealers to put them back. So it wasn't just a glance down. It was, I'm on my hands and knees Hmm. searching for them. So... It's those small pieces during the day that reminds me, oh, yeah, you have some issues with your sight. So (laughs) you need to do things a little bit differently. Sitting around the Thanksgiving dinner table, I'm not able to see the faces of my family. Seeing you, I'm not able to, you know, really look you in the eye. I can look in the direction of your eye. However, your face is like an out of focus picture.
2: Don't worry, you're not (laughs) missing anything.
0: (laughs) So it's really a case of, I miss that connection with people. And I do notice that I make it up in really tuning into my auditory skills and becoming more aware of what's happening with the energy around people as well. So, you know, when I'm working with my clients, I can tell when they're not breathing and it's not something that I can see them doing, I can feel and hear what they're, they are not doing.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, we all think about, you know, what would we do if we could go back and speak to our younger selves? Mm -hmm. You know, I I might've purchased some, some shares in public companies, but I, my (laughs) guess is, my guess is that you have some advice for a younger self. Like what would you have told your younger self regarding your, your journey with glaucoma and, and, and blindness?
0: Oh, definitely take care of myself better. So sleep, you know, all the foundational pieces of good health do contribute to your overall eye care and your eye health and really ensure that I had the family history like down cold so I knew who had what diseases when. So as I was speaking with eye care professionals, I could lay that out easily and have that at hand so that they knew the history of what they were dealing with as well.
2: Doug, you've been waiting so patiently over there. What is the impact of vision loss in Canada? We, we've heard a personal story, but, but there's a bigger picture too, right? Absolutely. And We, we looked at uh, 2019 health data and
3: found that over 8 million Canadians are living with a blinding eye disease, and that means they're at risk. They could lose their sight, and fundamentally the best prevention is a regular eye exam. In 2019, 1.2 million had already had vision loss. It's uncorrectable. We haven't found the treatments. Research has not yet discovered. So they, they, these are critical. It's, it's, it's pervasive. $32.9 billion cost, social economic impact of vision loss in Canada.
2: And like everything else, COVID has add, added sort of an extra layer of terribleness to, to anything we try and do. But you know, speaking specifically about eye care across Canada, what has been the impact of COVID? Well, COVID's had the collateral
3: damage on eye health, and almost 3 million Canadians did not take go to an optometrist visit in 2020 during the covid period. And what does that mean? It means people like Laura who were at that early stage, her younger self, that regular eye exam is your first step. That's how you get diagnosed with glaucoma and the other complications like diabetes, compl- visual complications, age-related macular degeneration, your cataracts. That it's so fundamental that and yet Three million Canadians did not take advantage of that during 2020. What does that mean? It means that people are not, treatment, you know, it's so, it's so unfortunate because three out of four people, if they're diagnosed early, research has delivered treatments already that can stabilize their sight. The later you are in your diagnosis, that we don't have treatment options. You may not respond. So that that's why it's so critical, that
2: early, early diagnosis, getting your regular eye exam. So, you know, other than getting your eye exam, what else is it that we can do to stop basically what is preventable blindness? Mm -hmm. Well, this is it. You know, we've created a a website called
3: stopvisionloss.ca. There's a petition. You know, the government of Canada has been promising since 2003, four times they've promised to develop a national health plan. I was just talking to the United Kingdom where they had a plan in place. You know, they didn't stop anti-VEGF eye injections during the pandemic. You know, 70,000 injections didn't happen. You know, they had a plan to deal with the 143,000 Canadians that that had their cataract surgery canceled or delayed. You know, that's having an impact. 1,437 Canadians experienced vision loss because of all of that impact of COVID and not getting
2: those eye treatments. You know, I don't want to slag our health system because it has a lot of merits, but there are challenges when it comes to access of care. I I would presume specifically regarding eye care, right? Absolutely. You know, depending on where you are in
3: Ontario or other parts of the country, you have different access to care. Cataract, wait times in Owen Sound are over a year. St. Michael's Hospital here in downtown Toronto, it's almost a year. Whereas if you're in Woodstock, it's 40 days. So this complicate, and then you put on over COVID and the delays that happened, you know, that is a critical issue. The longer that surgery, you wait to get that surgery, the more complicated it is. And it's a part of the reason 37% of that 1.2 million Canadians have experienced uncorrectable vision loss because of the cataract delays.
2: Hmm. Okay. So that's the bad news. Uh, Is there hope uh, regarding research to stop blindness?
3: Absolutely.
2: Just last year,
3: Health Canada approved the first targeted gene therapy to restore sight. You know, as I sort of describe it, one gene down, 279 more to go. But this is an amazing moment of time for vision research. Ideas, have been proven in the lab that are now making the transition into real treatments. Over 100,000 Canadians are getting an eye injection on a regular basis that stabilizes their age-related macular degeneration or diabetes, vision complications. You know, we're tracking over 100 for inherited disease uh, clinical trials. We have about 1,000 age-related macular degeneration clinical trials happening. Treatments are on the way and they're we're, we're trying to do at Fighting Blindness is accelerate th- those treatments reaching
2: Canadians. If our listeners are interested in supporting your efforts or contributing, what sort of things can they do and, and how should they reach out? Well, there's
3: two actions. First off, of course, we need support. We're a charity. All of our funding for research comes from donations, and that's fightingblindness.ca. But also, we need a National Vision Health Plan so that the we are ready, active, we didn't have to deal with the pandemic, and, and so we're asking Canadians to go to stopvisionloss.ca in order to sign the petition and and demand, you know, it's been far too long that this it's been promised and not delivered this national vision health plan.
2: Okay. And if our listeners were interested in getting more information about eye care and eye health, what would you recommend? Well, at fightingblindness.ca, we do have
3: a health information service. Uh, we have a well-developed, uh, robust uh, outline of disease. They can read it, ask their questions, and, and seek that information. Uh, we encourage you to visit fightingblindness.ca.
2: Fantastic.
0: And. For me, in this era of back-to-back Zoom meetings that people are experiencing, there is something so easy that people can do that their eyes will thank them for, is every 20 minutes, look away from your screen, 20 feet out the window for 20 seconds. It is super simple to do, and it will just help your eyes and the strain that they are feeling because of those Zoom meetings.
2: So at the same time, you're getting up from your chair to maybe, you know, stretch your legs. It's an opportunity to to relax your eyes. Exactly. Well, that's fantastic advice. Thank you both uh, so much for coming on the show today. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. That was Laura Feltz and Doug Earle. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the characteristics of sexually healthy people on The Tonic. Is joint pain keeping you from enjoying your favorite activities? New Roots Herbal can help. Whether it's reducing acute pain and chronic inflammation or rebuilding worn-down cartilage, discover joint pain relief, Inflaheal Plus, and chondroitin glucosamine from New Roots Herbal. Only the highest quality natural ingredients tested for purity and potency in an ISO-accredited lab. Available exclusively at your local health food store. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens.
3: You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio.
2: Carl Jansen is a sex therapist and founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality store and workshop centre. She's the author of two books, including Sex Yourself. And you can find her educational videos and TED Talk at carlislejansen.com. And she can be contacted directly at carlisle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
4: Hi, Jamie. I'm well. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be here.
2: Yeah, it's always fun to have you on the show. So, Great. Yeah, interesting topics. So, you know, we know if we're physically fit because, you know, there are metrics you can test. You know, you can, you can get on a treadmill and see if you can pump for eight minutes and you can lift weights. But, but you know, the, I was always curious to, to wonder if, if there's a way to find out if you're sexually healthy.
4: Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, your doctor, and MD, can tell you a little bit about, you know, some of, you know, addition to blood pressure around um, how things are working sexually from some of the metrics like our hormones. But a lot of it is more psychological, emotional, relational in yeah. terms of how we measure health.
2: So I know communication is key for you. So let's start there. In terms of communication, how do we know? if we're sexually healthy?
4: Yeah, so people who are sexually healthy are people who can interact, communicate with people of all genders in appropriate and respectful ways. So it doesn't necessarily have a sexual undertone, but we can also be appropriate if we're interested or if we're in a relationship. We're also able to communicate, to negotiate, to respect our sexual limits, a partner's sexual limits, in conversation before and during sex which also includes that we can say whether we want to have sex or not have sex and we can decline and we can also accept somebody else's refusal or not non-interest in sex without getting hostile without feeling insulted or taking it personally necessarily mm-hmm. Other things are things like we can express our feelings of attraction and desire in ways that aren't just about the genitals. So we can engage in kissing. We can engage in different kinds of touching and not necessarily that leads in sex to sex or focused on the genitals. And the other piece is kind of a big picture. We can clearly state what our intention is for the relationship. Do we just want a date? Do we want it casual? Are we looking for marriage? Do we want kids? Right? We're able to really be clear about that. Even though those things can sometimes change over yeah. time, but we know what it is for us for now. And the other piece is that we we're sort of paying attention to nonverbal cues for other people having boundaries or limits. So that if somebody, you know, if you initiate sex or they say, yeah, yeah, it's fine, you know, or they- Always
2: always a ringing endorsement. (laughs)
4: Yeah, uh (laughs) good.
2: Right? Or
4: if they're tensing up, they're not reciprocating, we can kind of check in and be like, is this really okay for you? What's going on? Did I go too far? So we can read those cues rather than feeling like, oh, well, they said it's okay, so it must be fine.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's sort of like baseline communication. But let's let's move forward to relationships and and, and what that looks like.
4: Mm -hmm. So people who are sexually healthy can have lots of different kind of relationships and we can have friendships where, you know, even if there's an attraction we don't necessarily have a sexual agenda we can respect um, relationships we're in or the other person's in or that we've decided you know this isn't where we want to go so we can we can still maintain a friendship within that if if we want to some people can't and that's okay too to know what your limits are we're able to recognize when we're in a relationship that negative or exploitative and able to pull ourselves out of that. And for some, this is easier than for others, right? If if we grew up in, in, in homes where there was trauma and there was exploitation, we don't have good role models. And so that means also then that we can choose partners who are responsible, who are trustworthy, who are safe, who are giving, rather than people who take advantage of us. Who don't reciprocate pleasure or doing things for us? That we choose partners who are healthy for us.
2: That makes sense. I guess it kind of starts with comfort with yourself, self-esteem, and self-worth.
4: For sure. Um, if we don't have self-esteem, if we don't feel entitled to our feelings, entitled to our boundaries, that we're worth it, that then sometimes we make poor choices. Yeah. So people who um, are sexually healthy will. Uh, be uh, sort of aware of their bodies. They can stay conscious and present in their bodies. They know what they like. They um, are able to express that. They know what they don't like or what what they're not willing to do. They can also like touch their own bodies for self-pleasure or during partner sex without shame or disgust. Now, these are complex emotions that in a world full of shame around sex, are going to come up. (laughs) So it's not that they don't arise, but we can talk about that if it arises. We can work through that. And we'll take steps to address issues that arise in a current relationship. If we realize maybe we did something we didn't want to do, or we felt pressured, or if we have things that came up in our past, we're working through those so that they don't impact our present relationships. We also allow ourselves, we kind of give ourselves permission to have pleasurable sex. And and again, for some people, this is a no-brainer. Like, of course, sex is great. I love it. But for some people, it's hard to allow that permission to feel pleasure and to allow somebody else to nurture us, to accept that nurturing, or to do that for somebody else from an authentic way that we're doing it because we want to, not because we feel like we have to.
2: Obliged, yeah.
4: And so part of that means that we need to be vulnerable with ourselves and with a partner in terms of talking about what's hard, talking about what um, we're struggling with. Um, And, of course, then we need to be with a partner who, if they don't respect that vulnerability or they take advantage of that, that we're able to let go of the relationship.
5: Mm -hmm.
2: I would think, like, for some people, sort of learning And being open to new ideas would make them sexually healthy. Does that make sense? Absolutely.
4: Yeah. I mean, how do we learn about sex?
2: (laughs) (laughs) On the street (laughs) when you're a child.
4: (laughs) Right. I mean, you know, we get a lot from our peers at school. And let me tell you, my kids came home with all kinds of things that their friends had told them. Oh, that must just be. Not true. So we we can wade through what we're learning from school, what we're learning from the media, from social media, from movies, from our parents. And we can also sort of siphon through that and figure out what our own thoughts and feelings and values are related to sex. Um, and we're open to new ideas and ways of looking at things for sure. Okay. And then we can also understand that, you know, sex drive is healthy. It can be powerful, but it can be very healthy. And that everybody has the right to enjoy consensual, respectful, non-exploitative sexual behaviors with themselves and with other people with consent.
2: What about sort of how we perceive sex within our mores and values? Is there a context for that?
4: So as we grow, we figure out what our own values around sex, what's right for me, and part of this is trial and error. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're going to have to figure it out as we go along. We learn from talking to our friends, we, we try things, and we're accepting and respectful of people who have different values, different maybe cultural practices, different ages, different things that impact their values, so that we can be clear about our own, And but we can accept Um, and respect others. And we're also not threatened by others who might have different sexual orientations, different experiences. We can be okay with that.
5: Okay. Let's
2: circle back to the body and notions, you know, the idea of contraception and, and, and an issue like body integrity. What do you think about that?
4: So someone who's sexually healthy is really well able to take responsibility for their own body and their own orgasm their own pleasure it's not only up to their partner to figure out what they like they need to be an active participant and talk about what they like bring in toys you know use their own hands if they need to they take responsibility for their body of course uh, if there's someone who can get pregnant um, or with a partner who can they use contraception in a way that suits their values and and their bodies Um, they practice safer sex in order to avoid sexually transmitted infections and they also then get checked out regularly. So they get a regular checkup. They um, do a breast or testicular self-exams or get that done by their MD. Um, they do routine testing for STIs. So they make sure that they maintain body health within sex and also as a general practice.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. And the last area that I think I'd like to explore is sort of like the emotional, spiritual side of sex.
4: Mm-hmm. And You know, everybody has their own definition of spirituality and and, and some people it's from a religious base and for others it's more maybe of an energy. But basically that sexual energy is something that's present and and, and is part of human nature. And it's that, you know, je ne sais quoi that happens when you connect with someone um, and share sexual energy. And sometimes it's profound and sometimes not so much. And so sexual union is one way that we connect our bodies and souls with another person or multiple people, that this is a part of our sexual experience. And again, this is going to be something that some people feel strongly about and others, they don't, they wouldn't necessarily label it that they might label it as emotional.
2: Makes total sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
4: Always a pleasure.
2: What would you like to talk about next month?
4: So next month, we are going to talk about how has COVID changed the way we think about relationships?
2: Ooh, that sounds great. That was Carlisle Jansen. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Hi, I'm Jamie Buss, and I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine you know that if you walk or run and are out of alignment, you increase your chances of seriously injuring yourself. We're all athletes. Healthy, injured, pro, amateur, veteran, novice. Plantiga empowers you to perform better, recover faster, and build resilience through deeper understanding of how you move. Utilizing their sensor insoles, they measure your movement in detail, speed, gait, asymmetries, and so much more. Then you work one-on-one with a dedicated movement coach that gives you personalized insights and programming to help you achieve your goals, whether that's running a race or fending off that looming injury. To reach your potential and keep you in the game for as long as possible, register for the Plantiga Movement Health Program at plantigacom beta. This is The
3: Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
2: Dr. Thomas Ransom is an endocrinologist specializing in the treatment of diabetes, metabolism, and hormonal disorders at the Capital District Health Authority with Nova Scotia Health in Halifax. Dr. Ransom is also a clinical investigator who supported the SURE study, a multi-center investigational analysis of real-world evidence in adults living with type 2 diabetes, which was presented late last month at the European Association for the Study of Diabetes. This research was supported by patients across Canada, Denmark, India, and the UK, and provides real-world insight into type 2 diabetes treatment results. Welcome to the show, Doctor. How are you?
5: Oh, I'm I'm doing well, thanks. Let's start
2: with that SURE study. What is it?
5: So... Well, the SURE study is what we call a real-world study, where we looked at the medication called semaglutide. Every medication has two names just to confuse people.
2: Right. There's a street name and a real name, right?
5: Yes. You got it. Semaglutide also goes by the name of Ozempic. And it's a medication that people take who have type 2 diabetes. It's an injection they take uh, once a week to help control their sugars. And when a drug comes to market first it starts off in a, you know, in a petri dish and then they test it in rats and then they do safety studies in humans and, and see how it works and, and produce their, their data. But then ultimately the drug is out on the market and you want to see how it really performs outside of the controlled environment. And so what we have is pooled data from over 1200 patients from around the world, different groups, who are taking the medication as prescribed by their doctor, and just following them to see how it affects their sugar control, their weight, and their diabetes in general.
2: Interesting. So, can you sort of give us uh, like top line summary of what what the study showed?
5: Okay. Well, common people have diabetes are aware of a, a marker in their blood called the A1C. It sort of gives an idea of their control, and we like to get that under seven percent. And what, we, what was shown that is people taking this, this medication, over 50% of the, pay, of the study participants were able to get their A1C under 7%. But also at the same time, just over uh, almost 44% were able to lose uh, approximately 5% of their weight or more.
2: Hmm. So how is it that, that a drug that uh, is really prescribed for diabetes is helping people lose weight? Like, how's that happening? Do we know?
5: Well, we do. The medication, semaglutide or Ozempic, is actually a modified hormone that the, the body makes anyway. We, we call it the after eating hormone. When you eat a meal, as you absorb the nutrients through the lining of your gut, your gut releases a hormone called glucagon-like peptide one. We say GLP-1 for short. It does a number of things. Um, it helps manage your sugar after your eat. It tells the pancreas how helps it release insulin. Uh, it tells your liver. To stop putting sugar out, your liver is a big sugar-making machine. But it also tells the brain two things: one, you're not hungry; two, you're full. Uh, hunger and satiety are slightly different things, and this is—it's the hormone that puts on the brakes when we eat and helps manage the sugar. It contributes that way as well. But when the body releases it, it only lasts for a couple of minutes, and it's broken down. So what they've done is they've taken it and modified it so that. Uh, you could take an injection once a week and have the have all the benefits in terms of managing your sugars, and with uh, hunger and satiety managed, you can actually lose weight.
2: So this hormone that's become therapeutic is actually giving people the feeling that they're full, right? That they don't have to eat anymore. Is that essentially what's what's happening?
5: Yeah, you're you're less hungry, so you might be less likely to snack on a whim because you're not feeling hungry. And when you do eat, you'll feel fuller sooner. So you um, it helps with your portion control.
2: And the body does not break down the hormone when it's injected as opposed to the, yeah, the kind well,
5: they've modified it. So it lasts longer, Okay. but still has the properties to help with the sugar and also help with, uh, um, with eating and hunger.
2: Okay. Can you help me with a concept, which I'm sure is, is part of all of this, and that is real world evidence? What does that really mean?
5: Well, I mean, one analogy, you imagine you've all probably seen on the TV when they're designing a, a car and you put it in a wind tunnel and there's a smoke blowing over a nice smooth right. car. Well, that, that's sort of in the lab. How does it perform that way? But you really want to know how does it work out on the road in the real world? Mm-hmm. Well, medications when 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 we study medications, people are en- enrolled in trials. But it's very well controlled. They might get a call every week, how are you doing? And, you know, and people might be more likely to, you know, continue on with their medications as directed. To the, you know, they get little tips and things like that. And so the in the study, they say, oh, look, it, it helped with their sugars and it helped with their weight. Okay, that's great in this controlled environment. But what about in the real world. What happens when a doctor prescribes it and the person goes home with a prescription? What happens? Do they fill it? Do they refill it? Do they actually refill it again? Do they take it as prescribed? And they're not getting prompt, you know, recurrent prompts and checks, and as many checks as you would in a study. Is it still efficacious? Is it still working? And so that's why it's important to follow these medications once they're out and the controlled studies are over.
2: So I, I guess there's a presumption or assumption that when people are just taking drugs prescribed uh, or medications prescribed by doctors, there's what? There's a certain amount of uh, recidivism or, or, or that people don't follow instructions? Is that it? Is there sort of like a standard benchmark that people well, assume that, like is not going to be followed? Or? Well,
5: the- there's a certain percentage of people, or for instance, the side effect of this medication when you start it, you might feel nauseous that's not why people lose weight. if you tough it out, it goes away right and when you take this the the medication, you start at a low dose and and move up, you sort of you know every month move up to a, a slightly higher dose and when you're, someone's in a study, you might be told, but someone might just say, "Well, I don't like the way I feel. Maybe I'll just stay on the lower dose." Got it. Or if there is some nausea, they say, "Well, I don't. I don't know." They might be more inclined to say, "I don't think this is worth it." And so, and you're not following them where when someone's in a trial, you know, that someone from the study team gives them the call and says, "Come on, you can do it."
2: And right. The feedback. Yeah.
5: There's a feedback. So it's not that people just are dismissive or, or don't feel it. There may be some. But we don't know and that's why it's important to do these studies.
2: How important is the evidence in the context of, of managing a disease, for example, like, like diabetes?
5: Well well we really want to know how it does perform. You know, the evidence. When I, I want to know if I've you know, I've been involved in some of the studies before it came to market, and then we say, Okay, well let's see how it really does when when a, when a, a physician prescribes a medication are they confident it's going to work is it is are we going to reproduce what we saw for lack of better terms in the lab? Is it reproducible you know the the people who volunteer for studies might have a little bit of extra time because they're you know to be in, in studies and they're maybe a little bit more keen and hence they're You know, predisposed to actually enroll in trial clinical trials, but what about the person who's you know a busy life and traveling and and you know maybe a little bit older and or you know people who are rural like a lot of the studies you know just by default are close to academic centers where it's you know people in the city. But what about the people who don't have all these these accesses? And so these real world studies capture people that otherwise wouldn't have been enrolled or volunteered for the trial. So how applicable is it to everybody?
2: Got it. I would imagine that COVID really threw a wrench into this study, right?
5: Oh, well, it threw a wrench into everything. Yes, but of course, of course yeah. in this in the study, you know, typically we want to bring people into the clinic and weigh them and take their blood pressure and things like that. And then with certain restrictions, you know, the hospital setting you know, not allowing certain patients coming in, then we say, well, we can't, let, you know, we're not letting the, pa- the the sicker people come in. We're certainly not going to let research patients come in. And so we had to, you know, do a lot of follow-up over the phone. You know, when people are getting, delivering medications, like, you know, people... Normally, they would come in, and we'd, we'd hand it to them, and we sort of had to do the, you know, the drive-by. You know, <laughs> yeah. you see they come by, and the hand comes out the window, and we give them their, <laughs> their month's supply of medications and, and goes on. But but we're able to manage, um, and which gives us confidence. I'm sure all this you know, all the different sites had different strategies. But it, it did make research in general across the, across the board more difficult. We had to be... Uh, uh, adaptive and patients were adaptive too, which was which was great. So kudos to them.
2: Are, are there any caveats or concerns regarding the quality of the research just because the paradigm had to change because of COVID?
5: I'm quite confident that in the data, and, you know, it just sort of, it's an element. I mean, COVID was real world. Of course, and so yeah. here we, you know, here we see because, you know, what was, you know, what was going on and, and how people fared. And you've got to remember, this data complements the data. It's it's not proving, you know, we take the data from the lab and the well-controlled studies, this real-world data where we follow, and, you know, and there'll be more data to come. You know, the, the big conglomerates and in in health conglomerates in the states will have these giant databases where they are able to sort of say, okay, all the people who started insulin at the given time and the people who started some megalotide at this given time. And then, you know, what happened to them thereafter, they can compare them. So it's different kinds of data that all complement each other and just give us confidence in in what we're doing and, and that it's working.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
5: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
2: That was Dr. Thomas Ransom. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the connection between instincts and motivation on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, I'm Jamie Buss, and I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine.
5: This
3: is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
2: Stacey Irvine is the co-founder of Totem Life Science. The philosophy and identity of Totem have been greatly influenced by Stacey's love of athletics and her passionate belief that everyone will benefit from a healthy, active lifestyle in their own unique way. Through her work as a chiropractor and strength and conditioning specialist, Dr. Irvine's clientele ranges from beginners just starting out on an exercise program to elite and professional athletes looking for advanced rehabilitation and training program strategies. She's also a frequent guest on the show, Welcome back. How are you?
1: I'm great. Great to be back.
2: And I forgot you're also an author. I am. <laughs> and that's why we're here today because you've got a new book out, right?
1: I do. Yeah. I'm a recent author.
2: Well, there you go. So, so this is all about motivation and instinct, right? It is. So why do we find it so difficult to motivate ourselves, for example, to be healthy?
1: (laughs) Well, that's the million dollar question. I, I like that you jumped right into that one. Let's not mess around here. Nope. Okay. So the reason motivation, I think, I believe, I've been in the industry for, you know, almost 30 years. And what I noticed for all this time, and something that probably you're very aware of, is we have all the information. We know what to do. We know what to eat. We know how to work out. We can access all the latest technology. We can get the information. However, our society is unhealthier than it has ever been. So when I started thinking about this book and and why to approach things this way, I started saying, you know, we we've done this the same way for millions of years. A new diet isn't going to be the answer. A new piece of equipment isn't going to be the answer. And I really believe the answer comes more related to what's happening in our brain. And there's some very smart scientists who also agree with me that we we have to start making little changes In the neural patterning, if we want to make big changes in our health and our motivation and those types of things. So to me, motivation, it's not an external thing. It's an internal thing. And we have to start thinking about our brain and how does our brain work in order to impact it.
2: And so why do you think instincts are the answer then? Because I know not to give away the big (laughs) big takeaway, but your (laughs) book is all about instincts and how to develop them. So why do you think instincts are so important?
1: Yes. So there's not one answer. And that's, I think, the, the nice thing about the book is we go through all the instincts. And everybody is going to find different things to unlock their potential. An instinct that influences me a lot is going to be different from an instinct that influences you a lot. And believe it or not, my concept for this book came to me from my dog. Okay. And it was very funny because I had her as a puppy. So I had her at about 10 weeks and... It was, we were out one day and she started hunting Mm -hmm. and I'm watching her hunt and she's going after these squirrels and she's doing all these new things, things that I hadn't taught her. And she'd been away from her mom and away from all other dogs. She was just with me and I realized, okay, that's a pattern that's in her. It's innate. It's innate. And that's her instinct, of course. You know, we know that that is what it is. But what I realized is the hunting gave her a lot of joy Mm -hmm. and she was never happier than when she was using those instinctual movements to go chase squirrels or whatever it was she was doing. And it got me thinking, you know, humans are born with all those same instinctual patterns. And I don't think that we find joy from, you know, sitting in front of our computer eight hours a day. And not using those instinctual patterns. And, and I was thinking about dogs that are not healthy, because that happens. You right, know, we yep. have dogs that don't get to go out and go hunting and do those things. And I started thinking, you know, humans aren't that much different. Even though we like to think we are, there is definitely an instinctual tie-in between how animals develop and how humans develop. And I think we're not doing the best job of it.
2: I agree with you. I mean, I, am motivated out of like, uh, what is it? The sympathetic parasympathetic, it's out of yeah. fear, right? Yeah. Like I'm terrified because I have a family history of, of illness and Your I'm ter- Survival ter- instinct, Exactly. Yes. No, like yes. Okay, I, I work out because I can, and yes. I'm afraid about the day when I won't be able to. Yes. And even, you know, in my mid fifties and we've discussed this before, I'm already not able to do certain things just because right. of previous injuries and the way I'm built. Right. But I can't let that stop me because there's so many things that I want to enjoy, Maybe it's not the healthiest motivation, but it works for me. And I think that's what you were getting
1: at. I am getting at that. And and truthfully, it doesn't matter because it's working, right? So you found the instinct that's driving you. Yep. And you learn to understand it. And that's exactly what we're talking about in the book.
2: I, and this, I know this is impossible, but like, what do you mean by instincts? I want you to explain it for somebody who isn't, isn't quite sure of what you're getting at when you, when you use the word instinct.
1: It's a great question. So there's a bunch of formal scientific definitions in the book. I'm going to simplify it for you because after studying this for three years, again, I had to come up with a way of how do we think about this? And that's why that's such a good question. So I look at instincts as a pathway. So we are born with them, they're a pathway in our brain, and we choose how much we turn them on or turn them off, okay? And that's what makes it very exciting. So we were all born, for example, with instincts to move. We were all born with an instinct to run. We all knew how to do that from when we were born. That is an instinctual pattern. However, we don't all run as well or as fast as Andre de Grasse. Yep. Right, But he's taken that instinctual movement pattern and he's developed it to the utmost potential. Some of us take that running instinctual pattern and do nothing with it. And eventually, guess what? It's gone and we can no longer run. So the instincts, if you look at them as a bunch of patterns and then you say, okay, which patterns do I need to work on? Which patterns can be more developed? Then you've got something.
2: Okay. So maybe this is the $64,000 question and we're not quite up to a million yet. (laughs) Okay. So you have your instincts and then your views on motivation, right? Because because that's what really drives a healthy lifestyle, right? Yes. So how do they connect? How do the instincts drive the motivation? That's really, I think, what people would want to know.
1: It is kind of the million dollar question. And again, it's different for everyone. And what's really interesting is at the back of the book, I have a bunch of interviews. And mm-hmm. so I've got, you know, Chris Hatfield, Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson. I've got some amazing psychologists, Dr. Deborah McNamara. I've got a lot of high performers. So the reason I put those people in the book is that everybody thinks about these things a little differently. And guess what? Our environment impacts our instincts. 100%. So how you grew up and, you know, what you were exposed to. We talk about instinctual eating and all those things. So the reason I put the high performers in the book is to show the reader to say, okay, here's how these people did it in these very different situations. I've got uh, Matt Nickel, who works with professional athletes all the time. And I think what we do is we learn from that and we learn from our day-to-day lives. And once we understand what our instincts are, then we can say, okay, I'm motivated to do this because it was this instinct. Now I understand it. And that allows you to kind of either tap into it better or not. Like I talk about instincts for attraction. Now, if we all just did whatever we wanted with whoever we were attracted to, that would be a big problem. <laughs>
2: Probably. I think, have, I think our spouses would agree on right? that. Right. Yeah.
1: And we have many scandals that yeah. explain that there's people out there that don't understand that instinct well enough that they did act on it and, you know, and got themselves into trouble. Yeah. And so so that's why understanding, okay, that's just an instinct. I don't have to go do it, right? I can think my way through it. Or look, this instinct is very good for me. It promotes my health. It tells me to get up from my chair and go move and get some blood flowing. Yes, I tune into that one. So that's how they motivate us.
2: Yeah, and I think the real problem with our modern life is the modernity is what's working against our instincts, right? Like, like I don't believe we were made to be sitting in chairs or even doing interviews in front of radios. We were made to go out and do stuff and hunt and gather and and survive. And I think most of our lives are taken up with very unnatural uses of our time. Would you agree with that?
1: 100%. That's the million dollar statement right there. there yeah, no, that that is the key. Is we've designed this life that doesn't really honor our instincts. And so now we have to take what we've got and figure out how do we get back to a healthier more performance driven, and then ultimately happier way of living. But we cannot do it without understanding our instincts and our instinctual drives.
2: I agree with you, but like, you know, it's a tall order, right? I it mean, you, you know, most people have to spend so much of their waking lives working, right? Yes. Like it doesn't, unless the job you're doing lends itself to that sort of movement, like you're outside, maybe, yep. maybe farming or you yes. know, doing stuff like yes. that. You know, there there isn't a lot of work out there that really facilitates it, right? So how do we develop better instincts towards a healthier lifestyle. Can you give us a, some hints?
1: I sure can. And yeah, of course, it's it's all in here. But a lot of it, so there's a whole chapter dedicated to instincts in nature. There's a chapter dedicated to instincts and in animal connection. And there's a chapter dedicated to instinctual movement. All of these things are free and they're all available. It's just carving out the time in our day. So it's a hike somewhere in nature that's going to have a whole impact on you that's positive it's standing up to move a few times during the day when you're sitting at your computer how do you move why do you move that's all explained but those are super easy solutions that we can all do they're free they don't cost anything it's unlocking the understanding that's key
2: Okay. Well, that's really interesting. And I hope you've piqued the interest of our listeners because we've got a little bit of a giveaway, right?
1: We do. I'm very excited about it.
2: So we have two signed copies of Stacey's book. And what we're going to do is I would like an email to my attention, jamie at tonictoronto.com. And the best answers to the following questions. What do you love about the Tonic Talk Show? We will give you a copy of this most excellent book. How does that sound, Stacey?
1: That sounds perfect.
2: Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: It's my pleasure.
2: That was Dr. Stacey Irvine. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Laura Feltz, Doug Earl, Carlisle Jansen, Dr. Thomas Ransom, and Dr. Stacey Irvine. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The September-October issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our brand new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Bussin wishing you a healthy and happy week.